you so much, CJ. Take your Bibles and uh, for the last time, at least in this series, turn to the book of James. We uh, finish our study. This will be sermon number 37 in this series on James. I don't know about you, but it's been a journey that has been incredibly encouraging and incredibly challenging to me. And I hope that as we finish today, we finish strong and that God really speaks to us out of the last two verses. Um, the church's ministry of spiritual restoration. The last week we started these two verses by talking about God's search and rescue ministry. And so we conclude those thoughts today. Uh, find these verses, I think you already have. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. And let me ask you, I know you just got comfortable. That's okay. Get uncomfortable and stand again as we read God's Word. And uh, then you may be seated after that. James is addressing the church. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders away from the truth, and someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Father, we thank you for your word, which is always true, for the way that it speaks to us. I pray, Lord, now for an anointing upon uh, the things that I will share out of this passage of Scripture. I pray not only for that anointing upon me as the speaker, but an anointing upon all of us who hear. And uh, Lord, take these words, drive them into our hearts, bring about a transformation where we will become more like your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to stop and pray, Father, for the people that are uh, right now... Um, getting ready for this tremendous hurricane that's hurtling toward Florida. And we pray that all in its path, you would help them to prepare adequately. Lord, I pray that that would be just a reminder, a, a, a picture of the natural, but a picture of the spiritual as well, that there is a day coming, a reckoning coming. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us all to be prepared for that spiritually as we need to be. Also, I want to lift up today to you, Chris and Susie Morrison, our beloved uh, family who has gone out to serve in Southeast Asia. Pray for them and for all of the challenges they face. I pray that you would help them to be more than equal to every challenge, not in themselves, but as they trust in you. So help us now, Lord, as we study this passage to apply it to our hearts and to our lives. That we may never be the same as we follow Jesus today. I pray this in his name. Amen. Many years ago, when our family was young, in fact, this was before Katie came along. That's how long ago it was. I had accepted the position to become youth pastor in Plano, Texas. I like to say I was just a Plano youth pastor. Jan and I were shopping with our kids uh, at Target one day, and uh, we had Jason and Amy, who was just a, a baby. Jason was about 
oh, four, I guess, something like that. We were back in Target and looking at some clothes or whatever. I, I don't know, but we were all together. And all of a sudden, we looked around, and Jason was nowhere to be found. Have you ever had one of those moments and, and all of a sudden your heart drops, you go into this panic mode, and we started yelling, or we actually started calling his name. But when he didn't appear, we started yelling. Uh, you, you know, you, ju- you just kind of, you're not embarrassed. You start yelling his name and yelling it over and over again. And I said, honey, you stay here. I'm going to the front. Because my worst fear was that somebody had grabbed him and was walking out the store with him. And so I ran to the front and, and asked the people at the front, have you seen a, a, a little guy, and, and, and somebody walking out with him? And they said, no, no, that nobody's gone out this way. And so I ran back, and we, we were just beside ourselves. When all of a sudden I looked over, and there was one of these circular clothes racks. And I saw these two little feet underneath the clothes in the clothes rack. And I went over there, pushed the clothes back. He was in there just having the best time. I didn't know whether to shout hallelujah or kill him. (laughs) Search and rescue. The greater the love, the greater... The diligence will be to do it. James ends his book with a, with a twofold thrust. And we started this last week, and so we're going to go, go back and review just a, a little bit of that and then, and then bring it up to today. You see your outline there, the big idea of the book, and you see the, the, the big idea of today's message. But I want you to follow this outline because we're going to be talking about the reality, the reality that there are those Among us, this is what James says, who will wander away from the truth, who will profess faith in Christ. They're here. They're here this morning. And yet at some point in the future, they will wander away from the truth. Now, they may still stay physically in the church, but the likelihood is they will isolate and they will go away from the church. That is the reality according to James But then he moves on to the responsibility of the church. And he says it is the responsibility of everyone in here who is a true believer, who names the name of Christ, to always be on the lookout, to be, as it were, on a spiritual search and rescue mission. And then lastly, he gives the rewards for both the restored and the one doing the restorer. So let's just jump in. That first point is this, the reality that professing Christians can wander away from the truth. Now look very carefully at the wording here. He says, my brothers, if anyone... Now look at what he says. He doesn't say, if anyone of you. He says, if anyone among you. And we all have known people, well, maybe not if all, then most of us who've been around the church for any length of time, we've known people who were a part of us, and then at one point they left and were no longer part of us. And so here's the point, here's what I want you to ask yourself today. 
and I alluded to it a minute ago, could you be an anyone? Most of you would be sitting there and saying, well, Pastor, I don't, I, don't, I don't feel like the anyone among you who's going to wander away from the truth, and that could be true. But are you an anyone? Could it be that there is someone here who is on the bubble debating about the truth and almost ready to depart? Folks, this can be anyone. Consistent attenders, Sunday school or ABF teachers, it can be even pastors and elders. And some have wandered away from the truth and then they've come back to the truth and they've come back to the church. And some have wandered away from the truth and they've wandered away from the church and they probably never will come back. Here's the question that we posed last week and and here's what I, I want to do with that question today. Were they saved? Were they truly Christians or were they unsaved? Did they, and this is the whole theme of James, did they possess a true saving faith which perseveres or was their faith called like what we looked at last week in James chapter 2 and he uses several different terms to describe a faith that does no one any good. It's not a true saving faith. And he's giving a loving warning to people in the church. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but he doesn't bear fruit? There are no works. Can that faith save him? Twice he calls it a dead faith. Once he calls that kind of faith a demonic faith. And another time he calls it a useless faith. It's not genuine. It doesn't produce lasting fruit. Let me give you a couple of other scriptures that you can look at. And all of these things dovetail and are consistent with the teachings of the Bible, and particularly of Jesus in the New Testament. Look look at what Jude says in his little letter about these kind of people. Now, Now get a picture of this. They are among us. You know, that's kind of hard for me to say. I know most of you. And yet, it's inevitable. That's what James is trying to say. And here's how Jude describes these people. These are, look look at the graphic imagery. They are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear. These are people that know what they're doing, but they don't fear the Lord. Shepherds feeding themselves. These are sometimes pastors who are leading the flock astray. Waterless clouds who promise a lot but give nothing. Swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn. That's the time when the fruit bearing ought to be taken or ought to be uh, uh, seen. Twice dead, uprooted wild waves of the sea, casting their foam of their own shame. And then he borrows from his brother's book. I'm not sure who wrote it first, but he borrows that imagery from James, who has just written in verse 19, wandering stars. And if you remember from last week, that word that James used 
is the word from which we get our word planets. And it's the, the picture of, of the stars of the planets wandering around the heavens. For whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Titus says this. To the pure, all things are pure. And I trust that most of you are in that category today. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Now look at this. They profess to know God. But they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good Who are these people? I just gave you some biblical principles, some biblical proof texts that show that they are in the church. And so let's just look at a couple of those people that were were evident in the New Testament. Now, I'm, I'm not going to call names in this place because I simply can't. But in the New Testament, we find evidence of people who fit those categories. John chapter 6, we find that the crowds were following Jesus. They were even called His disciples. They followed Him. They hung on His words. And yet, when He began to speak words that were challenging, tough words, tough tough concepts, it says this, that many of His disciples, those following Him, turned back and no longer walked with Him. We find it true in the life of the Apostle Paul, who had co-workers. These were guys that went on mission trips with him. And he talks about this. He says, wage the good warfare, hold faith in a good conscience, but by rejecting this, we're going to come back to that sense of, of, of gaining a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, and he calls them by name, among whom are Hymenaeus, Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may not they may not learn they may learn not to blaspheme and then he mentions also in another place Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and then I'll give one more example from the new testament and it should be pretty obvious a guy that walked with Jesus for 3 years by the name of Judas Iscariot he walked with him he saw his miracles he heard his teaching ate with him slept with him all the rest of that and yet Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him, Jesus, that is, to them. I hope you get a feel from James about how important this is. In fact, it's important to me. On my prayer guide that I keep in my little journal, and I pull out, it's based on the Lord's Prayer. I've shared that with many of you. But when I come to praying, that second part, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then I pray through myself. I want His kingdom, His rule to be in my life. Then I start praying for my family. And then when I come to the church, do you know what the first thing I pray for you. Heritage is. I pray a lot of things in that. That you would grow and that you would bear fruit and that you would be constant 
in prayer and be built up in unity. But right at the very top of that, right at the very lead of that, here is what I have written down. I pray that they might be a saved people. I've shared this with you before, how tragic it would be if people who have come into this church, become members of this church, taken leadership positions in this church, and then were to fall away and become apostate, and never truly be saved, how heartbreaking that would be. Howard Hendricks, a lot of you know that name, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, And he always had these great one-liners. Well, a student of his who had gone out and started pastoring a church, young guy, bumped into Dr. Hendricks, and he was real excited about what was happening in his church. And he said, Dr. Hendricks, we had 300 in church this last Sunday, to which Dr. Hendricks replied, as only he can do, 300 what? Folks, I, I, I am glad when God leads people here and, and our numbers increase, but not at the expense of people being truly saved. That is a good question. 300 what? Goats or sheep? What are the symptoms of spiritual danger? I I just have said that there is a warning given. And I asked the question, could you be in anyone? Anyone who is on the bubble, you could be straying from the truth even now, or someday you will stray from the truth. What are some things that we can look at? I, I thought about this, I prayed about this, and I thought one of the best examples that I could go to is a guy that was at the, the, the top of his game, prime of his life. He was middle-aged. He was about 50 years old and, uh, and had one of the hardest falls that anyone has ever had. Now, this man's weakness was in the area of sexual sin. But I, I, I want you to apply it. All of us have certain propensities. We, we are born with certain bents and, and leanings and tendencies towards certain kinds of sin. This man just had a bent or a leaning toward immorality. Your bent might not be that, but you do have a bent towards sin. So you apply this as we go through this to whatever area that you might uh, struggle with. I want you to turn back with me, go all the way back to 2 Samuel, because that man that I'm talking about, that I want to use as an illustration real quickly for you, and his downfall and how that happened, is none other, other than the man who was called a man after God's own heart. It was King David. And I'm not going to read the the entire passage, but in 2 Samuel 11, in fact, let me bump that up on the screen for you. 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 17 really tells the story. And I I want to show you the downward progression. And hang on, because this is related to what James is talking about. Anyone, anyone, even even a great leader, who wanders away from the truth. 
Listen to just a couple of things. I'm going to read some of this passage of Scripture, starting in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Beginning to see any, any kind of a problem here? It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a, a, a woman, and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman. One of them said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him. And the rest, as they say, is history. I'm, I'm not going to read the rest of the story. I think the majority of you know it. But I, I want to show you a couple of things. What was the origin of David's downfall? We talked about this in our ABF class today. And everybody, and this is the way that I would have interpreted this almost all my life until here just recently, studying this out of the book of James. Everybody would say, well, that's easy. He was, he was not where he was supposed to be. He was supposed to be off fighting battles, but he, he, he was at home. That was not the beginning of his problems. Let, let me go through this very quickly with you, and, and I put all of those up there so that you can, either, you can either record those in your mind and your heart, or you can record those on your note. The very first thing that happened to King David before he ever got to the place walking around on the rooftop and looking where he shouldn't have looked was that he got desensitized to sin. Now with your finger there, I want you to go back just a couple of chapters to chapter 5. Okay, chapter 5 and verse 13. And this is important to see how this process works. And it, it, it has happened with, with us in this room, and it could happen to anyone in this room. It's, it's kind of a, a, almost a throwaway verse, but it's very revealing. In 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 13, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. Now, this is so important. Students, I, I hope you hear this. Not about taking wives and concubines. It's about defecting in your heart from God, from the truth. Did the culture of David's time, listen, did the culture of David's time okay the taking of many wives and concubines. Yes. Is the culture always right? What is always right? God's truth is always right. And if you will go back, you can put this cross-reference down, to Deuteronomy 17, God made some very specific statements. He said, look, Israel... When you get into the land and you're going to get a king so you can be like everyone else, and if you're going to do that, I have three requirements for the king. This is truth. And David knew it. 
First requirement, don't accumulate horses. What in the world does that have to do with anything? The glory of Egypt was their horses. Don't go to Egypt and buy horses. Don't get, don't get to the place where you're depending upon the strength of a horse rather than depending upon your God. Second thing not to do. Don't accumulate gold and silver for yourself. Why? Is it wrong to have horses in that culture or in this culture? No. Is it wrong to have gold and silver? But it was wrong for a king to accumulate those. And there was one other thing that God said. If you're going to be a king over Israel, don't accumulate wives and concubines. Don't do it. That was truth. And in order for David to do what he did and take that downward spiral, he had to be desensitized to the truth. Now, he was, um, shared this with the group this morning, he was two out of three. Oh, come on, God. I mean, two out of three, that's not bad, is it? He didn't accumulate horses and he didn't accumulate uh, gold and silver. But he had a particular weakness. And by the way, I put this in parenthetically. There's a saying that you've probably heard what the, what the parents excuse in moderation. The children run to in excess. Do you remember Solomon, David's son? He broke all three. Accumulated horses. Accumulated wealth, gold and silver unto himself like no other king in Israel and accumulated so many wives, and it drew his heart away. See, the first, the first step, say, listen, listen, Satan is not trying to get you to hate God. You're churchgoers. He won't do that. He just wants you to forget God. And forget the truth of what he has said. First lie in the garden, what was it? Has God really said, oh, come on. Our culture says that this is okay. We voted. I mean, it's the law. So it has to be okay. You're born that way. That's what culture says. And God has a truth. When we reject His truth, we become desensitized to the things of God. But there's another thing that grows out of that. I've got relaxation and isolation. And I'm not talking about re relaxation just laying on a couch. It could be that. Because if you're, listen, if you're desensitized to the truth of God, you could become a couch potato and all you do is flip through the channels. And that's a, that's a setup for failure. Okay? Or you could just be on your phone all the time. Never having a quiet time. Or you could just be on the Xbox all the time. And I'm not just looking at students, I'm looking at some adults too. You see, relaxation, what I mean by this is relaxing the standards of God and then stepping out from the people of God and isolating yourself. And that's what David did. He should have been with his soldiers in battle and he stayed back home isolated and there's no indication until he went to his servant that anyone else was up on that rooftop. Do you know, in the next month, we're going to be talking about discipleship, relational discipleship. 
And that's one of the reasons why accountability is so vital. You'll be hearing this question, who's pouring into you and who are you pouring into? David probably should have had someone on the rooftop with him, but he didn't. He was isolated. Third step. You see how this is going downward, the downward spiral? At any point he could have stopped, but then he got into enticement and fixation. Enticement is one thing. Remember, you, you have, everybody in this room has a certain bent or weakness toward a certain kind of sin. It may be lying for you. It may be stealing for you. It may be immorality for you. It may be being disrespectful to authority, to your parents, those kinds of weaknesses. But the enticement comes, and what David should have done is what we need to do. Anybody know what Job 31.1 says? Who knows what Job 31.1 says? Jason Brown, you know what 30, Job 31.1 says. I'm picking on him today. I just, it just happens to, to fit. Job said, Job was old. By the way, do you realize that David, listen, David went from being a man after God's own heart to becoming a dirty old man. His look became a leer. When my son was in high school, he ran around with a group of guys. Thank God, accountability. They were called the fellas. That's what they called themselves, the fellas. They just did a lot together. But, and we, we did some discipleship studies, and they did this on their own. They found Job 31.1, and to keep each other accountable, they would, all, they would ask. I think this is what you would ask. Come up to one of the guys and say, hey, are you Jobing it? When they saw a pretty girl walk by. Hey, are you Jobing it? Have you made a covenant with your eyes and with your heart that you will not look lustfully on a woman? Paul said it this way. He said, look, take every thought captive. David could have done that, but he didn't. He let the fixation become something that led, look at this, and what did he do next? Rationalize. Do you see that in this passage of Scripture, his servant tried to talk him out of it? That's the gist of it. This is Bathsheba, the wife of of Uriah. Hello, David. Wake up. She's a married woman. I think that the servant was trying to talk him off the ledge. And any good accountability partner will. But he wasn't having any of it. He rationalized. I, I don't know what all he rationalized. I just know that for, for me and for you, it's so easy that when we are wanting what we want, then rationalization comes into play. Well, now, you know, she, her husband has run off and left her. He's out on the battlefield. He's a lot older. She needs consolation and blah, blah, blah. One rationalization after the other, and finally it led to the degeneration of immorality, lying, murder. I think one of the most telling things in this story is that he got Uriah drunk. 
So Uriah would not go against his resolve to sleep at the king's gate. I'm going to stay with my men. I'm not going home. I'm going to stay. Boy, what a noble guy Uriah was. And even drunk, Uriah was a better man at that point than David was, sober. We all know that story. Here's what the book of Hebrews says. That's just a quick look at one way that we can do all of that. Therefore, the writer to the Hebrews says, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. What? The truth. Take care that you don't drift away. Do a spiritual checkup. So how do you know? In David's life, how would anybody know that, that he, was he a, a backslidden believer or was he an apostate? God knows the heart, but I think we do know with David. And here's how. We do know with people who are away from the Lord by his response to efforts to restore him to the truth. If a person just walks away from the Lord, walks away from all efforts and lives in sin, then it would probably be safest to assume that that person at that point is not a believer. But if like David, he's grieved, he sees that the Holy Spirit takes the word, you are the man, and he's drawn back. And he was backslidden and he's been restored. And that's what the ministry of restoration in James chapter 5 verses 19 and 20 is all about. Let's move on to the second point, the responsibility. Listen, I said this last week and I'll say it again. The responsibility of spiritual restoration is for every believer. I asked the question a minute ago, is it possible that you are in anyone? Let me ask the question from this particular verse, part of the verse. Will you be a someone? To go after the anyones who have left. And so many times, even today, even in this church where we teach that we, we teach that this is a, a responsibility of every person. You who are spiritual, if you see a brother overtaken in a trespass, go after him, restore him. Look to yourself so that you too might not be tempted. Bearing one another's burdens, you will fulfill the law of Christ. This is addressed to believers, not just the pastors. We know what the job of the pastor and the elders and teachers are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. By the way, let me just say this. I am so pleased was thinking about this. The, this is hard. I mean, this, this is right here in your face. But I, I thought this morning, I thank God that so many of you, from our students all the way up to our oldest, that you do this. You take the time. You see somebody who has dropped out. They're not around. And you make the call. And I thank God for that. And I would say... Do it even more. And if you're not doing that, make a commitment. You know, at Heritage, we are known, one of the elders said this the other night, I agree with him, we kind of pride ourselves, hear my heart on this, we pride ourselves on being an expositional church. 
Bible exposition. But are we known as an expeditional church? Mounting search and rescue missions to go after people, to search them out, and to rescue them. A lot of you know my, my testimony. I, some of you are new and you don't. I grew up in a church, walked the aisle when I was 11. Sincere, I, since I, I wanted, I wanted to, to be a Christian. I wanted to do good things. And, and yet, when I, when I turned about 13, things began to change because the culture around me in my junior high was definitely not Christian. And so I began to be, be turned. I began at that point to make some decisions and began to wander away from the truth. I, I, I look back, and it's interesting, because little by little, and watch this, parents and grandparents, little by little, I, I stopped going to the things that were provided in the youth group. I didn't quit going to church, but I stopped going to the discipleship groups. I stopped going to those things where I could... Because I didn't want accountability. That isolation thing started to kick in. And by the time I was 16, some of you have heard this. I asked my mother. I said, look, I'm, I, I'm, I'm old enough. I'm driving. Don't you think I'm old enough to make the decision about whether or not I go to church? And amazingly, she let me make that decision. In the next two years, I dropped out. By the time I hit college, I was nowhere to be found in the local church. And that, that thing that you saw, the, 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 the moral degeneration, that was me. But thank God, I, I was thinking about this, who, who came after me? You, you, want, you know who it was? It was my mother. And she would tell me, I, I would go home to visit in college. And I was a wreck. I was a moral wreck in college. And I'd go home to visit her. And I'd even tell her some of the stuff I was doing. And she would so just, just look at me and she'd say, You know, Marty, I taught you the right way. I taught you the things. You know what's true. And it made me so mad. <clears throat> just... You know the truth. And she would pray for me. I know there were other, others praying for me in the church. I, I know that. I'm pretty sure there were others talking about me in the church. Well, Adam Marty Brown, yeah, he's, boy, he's tubed it. But about the closest, really, and this was, this was a great church. wasn't a bad church. I'm not getting on to it. But about the closest anyone else came to, to pursuing me, I was having surgery because I'd broken my nose my freshman year in college or before that, but I was having nasal surgery, obviously not cosmetic, you can tell that, uh, to, to clear a deviated septum. And so the pastor of the church said, hey, I'm going to come by and see you right before your surgery. Now, how do you think that made me feel? I'm isolated. I'm away from the church. I haven't darkened the doors of the church in, in a, a while. And that, I did not want him to come because I was convinced that they were going to give me 
to put me out, sodium pentothal, which is also truth serum. And I was going to start spilling the beans and I was going to start cussing because that's what I did anyway. You know, and I, I would just kind of let it all out in front of my preacher and I did not want him to come by. Now, fortunately or maybe unfortunately, he never showed up. That, that really struck me. Later on, he said, hey, you know, I was going to come by. Things came up and I understood. But, but folks, all that I'm saying is here. If you see someone who has wandered away from the faith, Don't be afraid. The worst they can do is say, go away. Well, maybe they could shoot you. I don't know. But but really, the worst they can do is just say, please leave me alone. And I've, I've had that before. But what James is saying, it's not me saying this. James is saying, go after them. You are the search and rescue team of Heritage Baptist Church. What's the rewards? Look at them real quickly. Here are the rewards. A sinner is brought back from his wandering to the truth. Look at the joy in the Bible. When Jesus told the story of the, of the, the, the lost coin, found the coin, what was the, what was the uh, aftermath of that? Joy. The lost sheep brought him home. What was the result? Joy. What was the result of when the prodigal son came home? Great joy and celebration. And that's not only just for, for, for them. They're going to celebrate. I celebrate that God finally was the one who pursued me and brought me back. But if you get in on that, you're going to get in on the joy. Second thing, a soul saved from death. Now, if you want to think physical death, that's okay. But I think it's probably closer to the reality. If that person is not truly saved, when James says a soul is saved from death, Think of what that means. This is not popular preaching anymore. People don't want to go there anymore, but it's just in the Bible. It's like that hurricane that's coming. And he's trying to get people to be prepared. The second death, the lake of fire, the bottomless pit. Drinking of God's wrath poured full strength in the cup of his anger. For their worm does not die. Oh, that's an awful picture. The fire is not quenched. They'll be tormented day and night forever and ever in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. That's going to be one of the worst things to know that Jesus is looking on and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. One of the greatest things you and I could do is go after them and see them repent. Little Joey was on a camping trip with his family. They got to their destination at the lake. Everybody was unpacking, and the dad looked around. Where's little Joey? He he was a little guy. Just about in time to see little Joey run out to the dock, slip, and fall into the water. And little Joey couldn't swim. And the dad did what someone does who loves someone else. He ran as hard as he could, jumped in the water. It wasn't very deep, but he looked under the water for little joy. And there, with his arms and his legs wrapped as tightly as he could around one of the piers, was little joy. And and, and he was just with, with his eyes closed and bubbles were coming out of his mouth. 
And the dad grabbed him, and little Joey put his arms around his neck and got him on shore. And, and aside from being glad, when little Joey was down there under the water, the, the dad said, little Joey, you're hanging on to that pier. What were you thinking? Little Joey said, Dad, I was just hanging on, waiting for you. And that's not just a dad story. That's a story of people who really perhaps are hanging on, waiting for someone to go. The last one is this, a multitude of sins will be covered. You and I can't cover one sin, but Jesus Christ can cover sins. And he's done that. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, because love covers all offenses. Is there a possibility that you could be in any one? That's just a question you'll have to answer. But here is the next question before we go. Will you be a someone? Father, I thank you that uh, your, your word is very clear and very plain. Uh, Lord, sometimes we, we muck it up. We're good at doing that, but I, I, I pray that the message of James in what he's saying in the last couple of verses will come through loud and clear to all of us. I don't think anyone in here will seek to become an apostate, but Lord, it'll happen through those small compromises. First, it'll happen through turning aside from the truth. Oh God, draw us back to the truth, and if there's someone who has wandered away, I pray that you would reveal that person to our minds today and we would give them a call, text them, email them, even this afternoon. So, Father, thank you. And thank you for, as we just talked about, the grace of God that covers all sins. That means no one's gone too far in this room. No one has stayed too long. I pray that you would stir in that person's heart. Give them repentance and faith and draw them to faith in Jesus Christ, even today. So we thank you. It's now we sing our final song and we're dismissed from this place. Help us to go. Be those on a spiritual search and rescue mission to the lost. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you